The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to Identity Matters Podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your host. Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed and have done what? Someone look up that Jude passage and have it ready for us. Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed and have began to tout something that has been absolutely detrimental to the body of Christ. Jude verse 4 says what? For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So certain people have crept into the church unnoticed who have been marked out ahead of time to do what? Those are the times that we are living in right now. We just finished a great discussion here in our little fellowship in Sterling, Kansas about the manifestations of the Spirit and how the enemy has used even the charismatic movement uh, or this gathering of people that have used spiritual gifts to destroy the church. Most people are afraid to talk about the indwelling life of Christ. It sounds charismatic. Many of the exchange lifers from the Keswick movement have been involved in this charismatic movement. Andrew Murray is a classic example of that, Watchman Nee, and many others who openly talk about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit inside and through a human body. Have you ever seen a miracle with your own eyes performed by a body member of Jesus Christ? Now there's pastors, teachers, and congregational members listening from around the world that go, I've got more stories than you have time for. Right? Yeah. And many of those leaders that I have some kind of relationship with, I would say to them, and I believe you, because they're not off the deep end. They respect the movement of the Spirit. They understand the power of the Holy Spirit moving within the body of Christ when it's gathered together. There's this statement out of Jesus' mouth that says this. When two or more are gathered in my name. Someone finish the verse. There am I in the midst of you. You know, we have to think about that. There's some people that actually don't go to a gathering on a Sunday morning or Saturday night. Because they're paranoid about gathering together with other Christians for whatever your reason is. You cannot experience the release of the Holy Spirit in a gathering format if you are listening to your favorite preacher on the radio or in a podcast or on television. 
Because there is not a Holy Spirit bearing witness with the Holy Spirit in another believer which activates the manifestation. Are you with me? So when Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there where you'll say, well, isn't he there when I'm by myself? When I'm in my prayer closet? When I'm singing and rejoicing in my prayer closet? Because I don't want anyone hearing me. What's the difference? We know the Holy Spirit doesn't leave our bodies when we're not around another Christian. Indwell Christian. So what, what's he saying? What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you exactly what's going on. The Holy Spirit is the representation of the law of God. We are not told to abolish the law. We are told that Christ fulfilled the law. Then we're told that there's a requirement for us to be released and to obey the Spirit or the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? We got to start moving and talking about the law just being Old Testament to the fact that after it has been revealed and fulfilled and shows the full character of God, there's got to be a reason for that. Just as there's a reason for two Christians to come together. The reason why we are required to fellowship together is for the release of the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is released in you. Well, since we live in a society, as the Lord was sharing with me yesterday, is that the society that has been presented to the people worldwide is, don't tell me what to do. So, if you're viewing the Old Testament and the law and whatever as, thank God I don't have to be told what to do in the church anymore. These marked people that are coming into the church that are presenting a grace that is damaging, that is demonic, are those people. They cannot be told what to do. And in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a law. So the whole movement worldwide has been, the law's over, it's done, it's finished, it's completed. Uh, uh, okay, now what? What's that for? It's to be released in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which only happens when two or more gather together in my name. There's a release. Your independence and loneliness and isolation and just hearing Jesus on your radio programs or podcasts or television is only the first step to be released from your sin, your pain, your agony, your loneliness, all of the things you're suffering with. That's just your first step is to hear the truth so that you can be released in it. So when you turn your podcasts off and the television show is over, and you go back to your normal miserable life as an indwell believer, there might be a reason for that. You're not making the next step. The law 
affects behavior. The law of the Spirit affects behavior. The law of the Old Testament affects behavior. So let's take a look at that. We are on number 107, Identity for Eternity. Some grace-oriented teachers have objected to the idea that the law, capital L, was to regulate behavior and to separate the obedient from the disobedient. How many here believe that the purpose of the Old Testament law was to produce failure? Okay? What is wrong with God? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Humanly speaking, that is absolutely ridiculous. It, it, the idea of, of setting some system in place to make people feel like failures? God was not interested in having you meet the mark. What is the Greek definition of sin? Missing the mark. So, God was not interested in you meeting the mark. He was interested in you trying to meet the mark. So you could see, experience, I am a failure. I can't do it. I need someone to fulfill it for me. Well, the only way you can join forces with Fulfilling the law is to have that person who is able to fill, fulfill the law living inside you. Now, if that person was able to fulfill the law and they live inside you, you are hitting the mark. Well, see, some of you are so paranoid about the teachings of sinless perfection, you're missing the obvious truth. Exchange lifers are not teaching sinless perfection contrary to some of the emails that I get, and I'm sure other Exchange Life teachers get the same emails, we're not teaching sinless perfection. But we are teaching that indwelt people are perfect. Now that's a mind-bender, because that makes no logical sense to humans. How can you say you're not teaching sinless perfection if you say you're already perfect? You're already holy. You're already chosen. You're already the beloved. You're already hitting the mark. Because they don't understand the exchange life. I have Christ in me who fulfilled the law and he hits the mark through me. The Old Testament law was to separate out the obedient from the disobedient. The ones that are saying, you can't tell me what to do. From those saying, well, I'm going to do my best to hit the mark. And if you walked up to them and said, do you know God's laws for the purpose of you not hitting the mark? Now comes some good theological teaching. And thank God that the Lord has loaded the earth down with some very solid theological teachers who could actually explain that, what you're looking at. Failing to put themselves into the contextual mindset of the Hebrew people of the period of that time, they tend to project and force the new covenant truths back into the old covenant. 
You say, well, that's just ridiculous. I don't understand how that could even be done. Well, any time that you're disappointed in someone not hitting the mark that you set for them, that's called Godship. You have no right and prerogative to put a standard on another human, or on yourself, or on God. You have no right. So what these gracilistic people have snuck into the church, they're already marked for condemnation, and they're teaching a form of grace that literally evaporates the law. Well, I'm telling you here today, if it evaporates the law, it's going to evaporate the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus who lives inside you. That's the end result we're talking about today. You eliminate the impact of the character of the law of God, you eliminate the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. The law is a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ so that we can be just as if we never sinned. And that's what a lot of the hyper, anti, indwelt, exchange life people are saying about the indwelling teachings. They do not understand. So what they end up doing is shoving the new covenant back into the old covenant. So therefore you've got indwelt Christians or just Christians, people like following Jesus, not being indwelt by him. And they're running around the, the communities and they're putting all these standards. So they're trying to keep, you know, the kosher requirements. They're trying to keep, you know, thou shall not murder. And they're trying, 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 trying. And they have somehow become become teachers of this bad grace. And they're conforming, they're mixing, they're blending the new covenant into the old covenant. Instead of having the old covenant fulfilled so the new covenant can meet its own needs. The Old Testament law was indeed behaviorally based and driven. How many of you have suffered with an unbeliever, husband, wife, child, friend, that you have put standards on them because they laugh at you, swear at you, hurt you, beat you, whatever, and you put these standards on them to change? You send them to 12-step groups. You send them off to psychobabbles. You send them off to get any kind of treatment that they need. Why? Because you don't want them beating you anymore. Let's see how that works over in Pakistan. Let's see how it works in the Middle East in general. Let's see how that works in the end times. It won't work. And it doesn't work. We have become a society of fixing other people so we're not hurt. That's what we have become. So therefore, when the persecution of the end times is pushed upon this country, we'll have no clue what to do because we can't sue them. The lawsuits won't work anymore. We can't press charges on them because the whole culture will support it. Can you imagine your local police department supporting Christian persecution? Well, it's coming. Where they will be obligated to 
support the laws in place of certain Christians who are committing crimes of hate. That day is coming. There are Christians being arrested today for hate crimes. There will be more arrested tomorrow for hate crimes. For not accepting a homosexual gay marriage in their church. For not being openly accepting of killing elderly people. And the list goes on and on. The law reveals the character of the nation. And if you take a look at our nation and our constant revision of the laws, it's very easy to connect the dots. In our next slide, Mother of the Cross, I'm going to show you something very important here. The Hebrew here to the right, you would have to download the PDF to actually see this graphic, which I'd encourage you to do. You have modern Hebrew to the right, and then you have pictorial Hebrew up here to the left. What you have for truth in pictorial Hebrew is the cross, deep water, and the ox. When you put that together, it's the mother of the covenant. This is, this is the Old Testament, okay? This is Hebrew. This has been written in your foundation of your faith, of your beliefs from the beginning. And if you respond to that by saying, that's not what the modern Hebrew says, I would have to agree with you. You would have to understand the pictorial Hebrew to get the true truth about these definitions. So, truth means the mother of the covenant, or what nurtures the covenant. Deep water, an ox, is strong mother, strong woman. Then you have tav, which is sign, or a cross, or covenant. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he was signing his covenant. The fact that he was on the cross shedding his blood, that blood was being shed, was the signature in blood. So the truth is the mother of the covenant. Now something else is being unfolded here for us and that the Hebrew word truth is emet which means the mother of the cross or covenant, since mother means ox, strong water, and sign means cross or covenant, the truth ultimately means the mother of the man nailed to the cross. Can it get any more plain than that? Mary was, and Catholics know this, to an extreme I'm afraid, that she was the mother of the man nailed to the cross. She was the mother of God. Thus, they took it one step forward and said she was, she was holy. You see, that's how, the, that's how this happens if you don't understand the new covenant. You have to finish the rest of the sentence yourself. Here's another thing. When we put the Torah and Emet together, it translates out as the man nailed to the cross washes through the new covenant. 
says strong water is a washing. It's the same term used for the flood. When God looked at the flood, he saw a strong woman. That's where the Hebrew pictorial comes from. Deep water is the description of a woman. What is around a baby? Water. It has always been a clear description of what mother means. Protection. Washes. Covers. So the fact that the man nailed to the cross is the one who's actually doing the washing becomes our most and strongest theological statement from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that gives us the truth for the New Covenant. So when you say, I was washed by the blood of Jesus, you're looking at it. You are looking at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant side by side. But see, the blood of Jesus had not occurred yet so that the blood that was shed had to be done through animals to set them up for this. It's always puzzled me why some of you rabbis do not do sacrifices in your synagogues. Where are you getting your washing, bro? Have you ever wondered that? The modern Jewish synagogues don't do any more washing? That means that generation after generation, the people are piling up their sins. There's no washing. When the temple was destroyed the last time, the washings went away. And that's why the Jewish people are known today as the most liberal people in the entire world world. Israel was the first gay country in the entire world. They were the first to nationally legalize gay marriages. And that's just the top of the list. Why are these people so liberal? Unless you're an Orthodox Jew, there's still no washings. Bad doctrines that are not washed away add to other bad doctrines. When the Hebrew pictorials of 571, 134, and 21, and 622 are unified, we have to be betrothed to the man nailed to the cross. If that doesn't bend your mind, then you're sleeping as you're listening. So truth in the addition of unification of all of the Hebrew words to describe truth are put together, you have, you are engaged to the man nailed to the cross who's going to wash all your sins away. Bride of Christ. That's where we get it. We don't get it from the Greek. We get it from the Hebrew. But unless I'm able to read the Greek or speak the Greek to you, maybe you won't believe this. I'm only a supporter of Greek because that seemed to be the English language of the time. But I am completely in support of Hebrew. 100%. So when I read something in Greek, I want to know what the Hebrew says. 
Don't be a revisionist. We do not want to be guilty of a revisionist reading of uh, Old Testament history, attempting to rewrite it according to a self-related standard called Godship. Historical revisionism is often adopted by those who desire to justify their own interpretations or guesses and what their spiritual, political, or personal agenda is. Like, for example, if you have a gay son, as someone who I am ministering to now, you have to make the scriptures support that. Or you're going to have to reject your son. You can't walk up to that son and say, do you realize that God hates homosexuality and it literally says that homosexuals don't go to heaven? What are you going to do with that passage? You're not going to memorize it. That's what you're going to do. You're going to somehow put a black line through that verse so that does not come up in your discussions. Why? Because he's your son and we're called family first, right? Are you kidding? That's why Jesus said that if a man loves his father or mother or brother or sister more than me, finish the verse. He is not worthy of me. But that one's selling every day, all day long, all the way around the world. That one of your kids or grandkids gets sucked into this movement that's growing faster than a cancer, by the way, is getting sucked into this movement and you don't want to reject them, so you rearrange your entire ministry life. We have very dear friends, well, they used to be good friends, in ministry that went from being pretty much like we function theologically to now they're writing books on homosexuality. How does that happen? An exchange live teacher can go from that to this. You're looking at it. This corrupt method has been engaged by some when they interpret the law as something that can be attained in one's own strength and choices, thus bringing works into the new covenant, blending it with grace, and resulting in a continual error that Paul kept warning us about, and others as well, found himself addressing, and that's gracializing legalistic self-fulfillment. Jude, verse 4. That's how it happens. See, the thing is, is if you address one of those condemned people who are in the church, who snuck into the church, and start teaching this style of grace, if you confront them, they're the toughest on you with hatred, rejection, and persecution, than the end to all believer if you brought the same truth to them. That's the weird part about it. Some of the most hateful people I know on the face of the earth are those who carry picket signs that have love on it. It's gracialized legalistic self-fulfillment is what it is. God wants us to delight in the law of God himself. In Jewish thinking, the law included God's direction for all of us. It could not be divided into categories and certainly not into categories which made some laws something you were obligated to obey and others were just optional if I wanted to do it. Some laws permanent and some laws temporary or some laws more important than others. 
So here's the ridiculousness of this. If you talk to some of these kosher Christians, and they're into the whole kosher thing with foods and kitchens and, you know, whatever the case may be, and they claim to be Christians, certainly Christ followers, and some may even claim to be indwelt by Jesus Christ, and they, if you have them explain to you, why, why are you into this kosher thing? What's the benefit? When everything kosher is defiled. No, it's not. Yes. Do you know when you wash the counter and bleach on your kosher side of your kitchen, that it takes less than five minutes for that counter to be defiled again by the air? Well, we know that. That's why we can't have meats on one side of the kitchen and then, or you see, they've got laws in place so that they keep everything that's defiled on in that kitchen and their kosher kitchen over here is not been defiled and they're not taking into consideration that the water's defiled, the air's defiled. If you left both kitchens alone for four months, someone please tell me what the two kitchens will look like. You'll have a pile of dirt on both sides. Now we're going to go 15 years. 15 years. Kosher kitchen on the right, non-kosher kitchen on the left. 15 years from now, what are we going to have? The wood is deteriorating. There's weeds that have moved its way up through the, the base of the floor. and the, You're going to see the exact same deterioration. So they only have one choice. Are you with me? I hope you're following me, koshers. You only have one option, that is to become OCD. Where you put more effort on OCDing the, the kosher side than you do the non-kosher side. You kind of keep the non-kosher side as clean as you can, but the OCD-ness needs to attach to the kosher kitchen. Why? So you can fulfill the law. And then this guy, I think his name's Paul, he comes knocking on your door and you invite him in for a cup of coffee. And he's watching you OCD one side and the other side, you know, is just kind of normal. And he's watching this whole thing and he looks at you and says, you know what, if, if you keep that law, you need to keep them all. Now, I am not ignorant. I know that even those who are snagged by the kosher world that you're not listening to me and you're not going to listen to me and the 0.05% that do listen to preachers who preach against kosherness is rare all of you health food fanatics all of you dietary people are going to continue to do what you do because you feel like you're going to die if you don't and the fact is what you're doing is causing the death. That's what Paul's telling us. If you try to keep the law, you're going to die faster. This is why you find today Christians making use of laws and reading from the Old Testament to reinforce their traditions or standards as a new covenant people. Anytime I hear parents use the Old Testament to keep their children in line, I'm going, you're going to kill those kids and send them off to the world of Satan. The law kills and destroys. Romans 7.5 says, For the law rouses 
sinful passions. If you use the Bible like it is some kind of switch that you spank your children with, you're going to kill them. You're going to destroy them. You're going to send them to the, into the hands of Satan. You're going to walk them into the dark forest and say, Don't be scared. No, that won't happen. Writing from the knowledge of unified Jewish perspective of the law, Paul explains the necessity of, quote-unquote, abiding by all things written in the book of the law, which is Galatians 3.10, and of being, quote-unquote, obligated to keep the whole law. You try to keep one, you will be required to keep them all. It's not that you'll be compulsive to keep them all, because you're not. So if they're keeping the kosher kitchen thing going, but they got all this other stuff going on in their life, and you come at them and say, you need to get these laws activated in the rest of your life. Your kids are shot. They're a wreck. You're, you know, you're, you swear too much. You, you, and you just start going down the list. And they get wore out before you're done talking to them. So what they do is they pick things that they think are going to make them feel better. And diets usually make people feel better. Exercise makes people feel better. They pick the feel better laws. And then we build a society around those feel better laws and they put those standards into our society so that if you're walking down the sidewalk and you're 10 to 100 pounds overweight, you feel guilty. Because everyone you're looking around are keeping the kosher laws of addiction to health. And the person may not stop you on the street and say, you know, you're fat. A kid might walk up to you and say you're fat. But see, the person walking down the street, they may not stop you and say, excuse me, sir, you're way overweight. And I've got to diet for you if you really want to get this under control. That's our society. Whether you stop someone and do it, or you're just looking and saying it, what you think, you've already committed the sin. The law has already started. So what we've done is went to educating people. The kosher, demonic laws that have come with it are in our societies everywhere. You don't have to be Jewish and have spent $30,000 on an additional kitchen to be guilty with what Paul is saying. It's in our thinking. We are anorexic thinkers in our society today. There's anorexics in this room, in their mind. There's anorexics listening, in their mind. Even if they get on the scale and say, I'm okay, not anorexic and I'm not fat. Just the fact you did that, you're, you're expected by God to keep the rest of the laws. Fat people, I'm telling you today, God loves you like he loves the skinny people. No different. And those of you who can afford the expensive diets, God loves you just as much as those who have to eat the crap out of the canisters in the back of the restaurant. He loves you the same. The standards that we have put upon mankind, God's going to come along one day and say, you kept one requirement out there for the people? I'm holding you to all of them.
you are guilty of all of them. The number one standard-setting demonic doctrine in the world today is diets. There's no other way to say it. The second one is what? There's only two that have stated. There's many demonic doctrines. Marriage. So when you look in our culture today, those are the two things you're going to see. Marriages of homosexuals and marriages of some guy's got eight wives and food and marriages. Listen to the news tonight. You'll hear about them. And God is saying, you do one, I'm going to hold you to the rest. Now those Greasalistic people have stepped into, the, into our churches and said, okay, no rules in. No, that's not true. Because the law of the spirit of life inside you may say, don't eat that donut today. Tomorrow the law of the spirit of life may say, you can have a donut today. You see what I'm saying? It's hearing God. That's what it's about, it's hearing God. He may say, one helping today, Stephen. Tomorrow I say, go ahead, get three or four on that one. It's hearing God. That's the whole thing. And Paul is leading us as students to that point. This is just addressing the issue of the law that's keeping them from being set free in Christ Jesus. So we're not to pick and choose to meet self-interpretive standards on topics such as diets, animals, personal behavior. Likewise, James understood that law could not be partitioned off like that. He said, quote-unquote, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one, he has become guilty of all. So it works the other way too. If they got every single one of them down, but one, they missed. Just one. It's all over. And how do you build a society around that principle when our societies are built by laws? The law reveals the character of the nation. The law reveals the character of a community. The law reveals the character of a home. The law reveals character. This is our toughest mission of Christianity. But it's also Christianity 101. Gracializing the Old Covenant. Despite this unified understanding of the law by the Jews, theologians and expository type people throughout the centuries have observed categories in the behavioral laws of the Old Testament. The self-based permission, self-reward system of such categorization is to be questioned. Let me give you a modern one. What do we do on January 1 of every year? Make New Year's resolutions. What happens in June of every year? Man, I'm fatter than I was on, Ju- on January 1. I got an email from tons of ministry people with New Year's resolutions, so I decided I'm going to put one out there of New Year Reformation. I got a couple of responses. But see, it wasn't challenging the change of behavior. Right? Someone share with me an occupation that you can get a degree in 
that is not focused on changing behavior. We're trying to change behavior. Stop at red light. Everything is to change behavior to make things better for whoever it is. That's what you need to see. You can't even make a healthy living at a job tomorrow without answering that question affirmatively. And that is, my job is to change someone's behavior. Nurses, police officers, restaurant keepers, male people, it doesn't make any difference. You're trying to regulate behavior. And here's my response to that. Would it be theologically sound of me to put pressure on someone who is spiritually as dead as that doorknob and to expect them to act like a Christian? Do you know how many of us do that every day? That we put pressure on people to act like Christians? To act like they have the indwelling life of Jesus Christ? And they're a doorknob going to hell. There's no life in them unless I turn the doorknob. Do you understand that? That door's going to stay shut and act passive and rebellious because I'm standing in front of that door saying, I command you in Jesus' name to open. And I can yell at it and reject it. Write articles about it. Write books about it. Create a profession about how to open doors without touching the doorknob. And people are going to say, that guy is just an idiot. Turn the doorknob. That is exactly how we're supposed to handle life. If you're of the old covenant, no miracles. No, It's turn the doorknob, open the door, walk through it. There's rules of engagement for people going to hell. For people not going to hell, if the door was alive and well and had the spirit of the living God inside of it, then I could talk to the door and the door will open. Because there's life in it. There's a response. So when two Christians come together and bear witness with the spirit in them, there is a whole different world. But if you're expecting your non-Christian husband to act Christian, turn the doorknob. Make him do things. Make him take out the trash. Set off alarms when it's trash day. Write it on the board. Honey, take out the trash. Just do whatever you got to do to turn the doorknob because that's what you have to do to people who do not hear God. That's our world. It just so happens the majority of our educational world is built around laws to get the door open versus people responding after the Spirit. When your children are accomplishing the task before you ask them to do it, now you're talking about the life I'm talking about. That's how God views it with us. So much of human categorizing of the law has been done with the theological agenda of guesses as to which categories will be rendered valid, important. 
and which will be determined to be invalid or less important. And when it comes to the church, that is how they rate the New Covenant message. Well, I believe in the New Covenant message, and most will say it has something to do with the blood of Jesus when they hear New Covenant. No, it has to do about law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that is in you. That's what it has to do with. The new covenant is being birthed through you so that you can, in Jesus' name, talk to another believer when they gather together. I will be in their midst. There's automatic doors when you step up to them. There's life on life. That's new covenant. But you mix Old Testament covenant, Old Covenant into that, you've spoiled it. It's worthless. It's like pouring new wine in old wineskins. That's kind of familiar, isn't it? When these random categories become criteria by which New Testament references to the law are interpreted, it should be evident that the misleading and twisted methods are being used to gracialize the Old Covenant. Jude Verse 4. Throughout history of Christian thinking, as dangerous as that is, the behavior that the law regulates has often been divided into these primary categories. One, a religious, ceremonial, ritual, or culturally accepted worship behavior category. And this is why I wanted to bring that out in our discussion earlier. You see, what's stopping you from lifting your hands or dancing, or just shouting out in the middle of a song, is this law. Somehow you've gotten this standard in your mind from someone, or some church, or some theological base foundation, that you don't do those things. So when Jesus comes along and says, I want you to be like these little kids, see how they're jumping around and dancing? And we go, oh. So what does Satan do? He says, hmm, I need to change the children. He hardens their heart so that they don't get it. So that us older people can't look at the kids anymore. So it is obvious that God's law related to the worship behavior of the Israelites. It's all methods. And there's also laws that are centered around sacrifices and feasts and festivals and you know, how they worship in the synagogue and on and on and on. Well, if you don't think that the Christian church is not suffering with those things. Two, the civil, social, political, and, and judicial behavioral category. Well, that shows up in almost everything that's around us. And then you, when you bring it into the church, we say, okay, we start our services with prayer. Then we start singing a song. And then we have announcements. And then we, and there are people listening right now that you're in your church doing those things. Because number two has been introduced to you. And when you started that church plan, you're following some method of madness. That actually produces more sin in the people sitting in your pews. Start relaxing a little bit. Let the, let the service flow. 
Number three, moral, ethical, personal, or individual behavioral category. That's all about our behavior. And that list is long. Here's our identity matter statement for today. Again, it should be noted that these categories were so integrated into Jewish thinking and so overlapped one another that they were never well known as distinct categories. It was life to them. So when the law becomes life to you, it's over. So see, to have the end times and the rapture, the people who are of the law of the spirit of life raptured off the face of the earth, and some of you have been running around saying that there's going to be another whole refreshing lap, a, a revolution, a revival of people being introduced to Jesus Christ again. You're wrong. 602-292-2982. You are absolutely wrong. The only people that will be saved after the rapture are 144,000 Jews who are bound to the law in this system that I just showed you. These two prophets will show up in a very dogmatic way and handling them as prophets so they can feel guilty. There's not a pastor and a prophet. There's not a prophet in a nurturer type. There is two prophets coming and leveling them about the law. And 144,000 true bloodline Jews get saved. That's the power of the Gospels, the power of the law, the character of God. And it will be brought to pass. Indwell Christians today must be very cautious about developing any theological thinking based on these subjective categories. Probably should even reject them. The conclusion of early Christians blending these categories is what gave Christianity self-based permission to blend the categorical law with New Covenant message of fulfilled law, therefore having the greatest error handed to us on a silver tray in modern Christianity. And it's the standard. I would love to see 602-292-2982. I would love to see one of you make it through this week without using the law to try to change someone. I'd love to see it. You see, rejection. When you're talking to someone and you have this attitude in you, you've condemned them with the law. You're using the law to lead them to Christ. Do you understand that? So when Jesus said that in Matthew 5, when he says someone slaps you on the right cheek, just offer them the next one, you're using their law. They're slapping you because the law, they've condemned you. You've not met a standard in their mind. You are leading them to Christ. I've never had any preacher explain it to me that way, except for my mentor. The law is a tutor that leads people to Christ. Rejection is the evidence that you have broken one of the laws of the person standing in front of you. So to love someone unconditionally means God's the judge. But not to take that into the emergent world, that's a challenge.
those of you who did download the PDF, there is a prayer of salvation. Keep in mind, these words do not lead you to Christ. If the Holy Spirit's tapping you on your left shoulder and is inviting you to become a bridal engaged member of the Bride of Christ, sometimes it's helpful to look at words that you can read over, pray over. So when you do make that decision to pray to receive Jesus Christ's life into your life, you'll have a good biblical prayer uh, to study. But I would like to hear about it. I'd like to know if you prayed this prayer, because we have discipleship material available. That'll help you grow in Christ Jesus. Renew your mind. I would like to make a little clarification statement about something I said in the last podcast about the dinosaurs. There is a common belief out there that dinosaurs are used by our present day society as a tool of God's creation. I am one of those that is of the belief that the whole period of dinosaurs that God did choose to destroy in the flood were a part of the corruption that was going on between the spirit world and mankind. Our study today and some future studies is literally going to be talking about the purpose of the law and that during those times there was no law established for the people so there was nothing to compare their sin to. As a result of that, there were many, if not everyone but Noah and his family, that became so corrupt that there was no difference between the spirit world and the uh, world that God did create. If you would like to chat with me more about some comments that were made about dinosaurs possibly being connected to that demonic world, I would love to chat with you at 602-292-2982. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.